First Samuel 19, 11 through 24. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. When Michal took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at, it, at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michal said, he is ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed, and at the head was some goat's hair. So Saul said to Michal, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michal told him, he said to me, let me get away, why should I kill you? When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him that all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern of Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth and Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth and at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? All right, great. Thank you, Sky. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. Great to see you all again. Welcome back to most of you um, who call Hiawatha home. And if you're visiting, welcome. Like Leah said before, we're glad you guys are, are joining today. Um, we are in a sermon series, as you just heard a reading from, in First and Second Samuel, uh, making some good headway. We're probably about halfway through, a bit over halfway now, even though we're not finished with First Samuel. Second Samuel is a shorter book, or at least we're going to spend a little bit less time in it uh, Sunday-wise, or at the amount of sermon-wise. Um, but we'll be, we'll be done around Memorial Day if, uh, if you um, are just joining and wondering how long we're going. Uh, we're going to spend the rest of the spring here, winter and spring in the book. So, um, now last week, if you were here, uh, Jesse, one of our lay pastors, preached. He mentioned that we're in this section right now in the book uh, of, or the section of First Second Samuel, where King Saul is jealous of David. Uh, David has been anointed king, uh, kind of in secret by Samuel, and he's uh, God's choice of a king, and uh, Saul is starting to see God's favor come upon someone else, and he's jealous and envious. And so we're in this section now of the book where King Saul is trying to kill David. He's chasing him and trying to kill him uh, in secret, but also kind of in public over and over again. And we have this collection of stories that we could call stories from the chase, uh, that fill the second half of 1 Samuel, um, but aren't just there for the sake of history, as we've been saying, um, you know, that we might know that this just happened or that these two men lived and clashed, but that we also might know theology. And theology is actually a word that literally means the study of God. And so by theology, I don't mean lessons about you and how you should live, um, but lessons about God. 
uh, lessons about what he is like. And ultimately, these stories have a trajectory to them. They, they are pointing us ahead in the Bible to another king who would come genealogically and theologically in David's line to be chased himself and ultimately to be killed in our place, that person being Jesus Christ. And so today, um, this story involves Michal, who is David's wife, uh, one of Saul's daughters, and who helps David escape from Saul in a very interesting way. I'm calling the sermon McCall's Trick because it's basically um, about that. We'll talk a little bit about um, Saul and becoming kind of a prophet here at the end as well, kind of a weird story there too, but basically a story about McCall's Trick, referring to how she made a David mannequin, basically, uh, with a statue and goat's hair on top and used it to trick Saul's men into thinking he was lying sick in bed while he was actually going out the window. So, um, cool story. You know, random stuff. I don't know if you guys have read these stories before or not. Either way, um, the Bible, it's been said before that the Bible actually, um, if you're really looking at it historically, it kind of makes for bad history. Um, Not that it's not history, it is, but bad history in the sense that it's choosing to highlight details that you might not, like in in your average history book. Uh, If you were trying to kind of broad brush, um, survey the main players and events and dates and different things of history, these are things you might not um, care to uh, put your finger on, but the Bible does for theological reasons and uh, and historical as well. These things actually happened, but uh, it's not just that, it's history too. So um, we'll we'll see kind of uh, more about that as we go. So we're going to start with a couple of broad takes here um, and ask the question, what is God generally like in this passage? And we, we see the answer to that question by way of two of the main characters, David and Saul. So uh, again, if you're new to the Bible, uh, sometimes the way you see what God is like in the Bible is not just from a direct appearance of God or a teaching about him or a statement about him, though we do see and learn uh, about him in those ways as well, but we also see him kind of through people, uh, being kind of um, an emblem of what God is like and how they're living as well. So imperfect uh, and uh, and marred in some capacity and shadowy uh, in nature, but still um, referential uh, to him. And so we see that here today as well uh, by two of the main characters, David and Saul. um, We see pictures of what God God is like. So we'll start with David and Um, The first thing to see here is simply the fact that David is on the run from Saul and unwilling to fight back. Uh, At first, that might seem seem like it's not that big a deal, insignificant detail. But when you remember that that about two seconds ago, David slayed a 10-foot-tall giant and that he has grizzly bear and lion slain on his resume as well, it stands out as almost kind of inconsistent Uh, Because Saul is nothing compared to a Goliath. Saul is nothing compared to a grizzly bear. But this shows David's unwillingness to strike Saul down, which he easily could have done uh, if he had wanted to. But the the idea here is that he doesn't. Uh, And later in the story, he's going to say that outright. But here we're starting to see um, images of this pronounced theme in the book of 1 Samuel. So much more will be said about this in in the coming weeks. But for, for today's purposes... Start to see in David a picture of Jesus, of God the Father, but also God the Son, Jesus Christ, being both wrathful and gentle. Uh, How he's wrathful against our sin, he's a wrathful warrior against our sin, and through that, because he dies in our place, he can have restraint with us. He can be slow to anger and quick to love and quick to forgive. 
Now, this reminded me of uh, Jesus at his friend Lazarus' funeral in John 11, how he had indignance and anger towards death when he walked into his friend's uh, funeral. But he had emotion and love towards the mourners. So the way these things come together perfectly, uh, the way that they're balanced out in our favor is at the cross, where in Christian theology we talk about how um, justice and mercy kiss at the cross. Or I think in 1 John 1 it says that God through the cross can be just and the justifier. He can be just because he's justly uh, judging sin through his son, uh, being a sacrifice, sacrifice of atonement for us on the cross, but also the justifier. He can make us righteous. He can justify us before himself at the exact same time. And so, so again, the way these two characteristics, the well-roundedness of David, which points to the well-roundedness of the Son of God, can come together perfectly there. Uh, and, uh, and, and we can see that our evil is being slain, but somehow we are being saved uh, at the same time in the process. So David here is a whisper of a day, that a day is coming when one of his descendants will come and, and be an ultimate enactor or, or a perfect reality of these things that David is an imperfect one of. All right, so the second thing here to see has to do with Saul, uh, who has quite the story arc here. Uh, if you've been following Saul so far in this book, this is kind of a, a strange moment for him. He has his odd moments, but uh, this maybe takes the cake. Uh, but he's going from a jealous, murderous, selfish, envious king to one who is overcome with a spirit of prophecy lying naked on his side. Uh, it's, it's such a stark difference that the people said, wait, is Saul a prophet now too? Like, what's going on? And so this isn't the end of Saul's story, unfortunately. He goes back to his murderous ways not too long after this, and we'll, we'll come to that actually as early as next week. But these stories help us to understand something important about salvation. They're, they're a glimpse. They're almost a microcosm story in a way that points to the, to the greater one, as we've already been saying today. And it has to do with seeing God's mysterious hand in all of this. I don't know if you caught that or not when, when Sky was reading the passage, but it's hard not to see God's, or feel, God's mysterious hand at work here, both in kind of saving David in a way, but saving him by way of deterring and deviating Saul um, onto something else, something that's more spiritual or more godly, you could say, something more uh, righteous and, and beautiful, that being, that being prophecy. But Saul here is the bad guy. He's the antagonist. Uh, the, but God is interrupting his murderous intent and leading him to uh, speak truth, to prophesy in Samuel's presence. Uh, there's actually in the Bible, there's another Saul uh, who had the same story. You guys remember the other Saul in the Bible who has the same exact story, pretty much? It's Saul in the New Testament who becomes Paul in the book of Acts. Uh, so Paul's story there is when he's on the way to murder Christians, uh, Jesus interrupts his life. He gets in the way of that. He appears to him in a blinding light, knocks him on the ground like King Saul, not naked but blind, and saves him in order to prophesy with the gospel all of his days. And so this is actually something we see played uh, on repeat a bit. We see another Saul have a very similar story arc in the New Testament, though it's dialed up there as well because he doesn't revert uh, to his murdering Christian ways. He becomes a Christian and he prophesies uh, by preaching the gospel the, the rest of his days. Now, 
To dial it up even further then, uh, this is our story too. If you're a Christian, this is your story. If you're not a Christian, uh, this kind of is too in a way, or this can be. Uh, This is what God is like. Uh, He is an interrupter of our hellbound race. Um, I I think the, the point here is, no matter the circumstances of your conversion, uh, it was God interrupting your hellbound race rather than your own self-made pious moments of religious sanity. Uh, you know, we're, we're Baptists here, so we believe in conversion. Most, most Christians do on some level, uh, and that's important. At the same time, it's God ultimately giving us the gift of conversion. Uh, conversion is not a work. It's not something that kind of grows up in our heart ourselves, that, that we kind of produce. Conversion is something that God works for and gives us the softened heart to be able to do in the first place. In fact, uh, we see a glimpse of that here, I think, too, when you see this kind of, this sheer audacity and shock and feelings of almost injustice uh, when the people are looking at Saul and saying, uh, noting this massive change and massive difference uh, in his life. Like, Saul's among the prophets now, uh, this guy who's been mur- seeking to murder David and who has uh, clearly a huge list of faults, who didn't fight for us when Goliath was taunting us, that kind of thing. Now he's among the prophets. Uh, or even if didn't, they didn't know any of that, just to, to see this change in the guy, moving from king uh, to prophet and lying naked on his side, um, it's, uh, there's an audacity to it. There's a shock. There, there's these, these feelings of um, change and almost injustice with it. Um, but I think like that, that statement of, is Saul among the prophets or wait, is Saul a prophet too, can be read as our story as well. It can be read as, wait, is Chris a Christian too? Uh, is he now among the Christians? That doesn't seem possible. Uh, I know him. I know his dark past. I know his dark presence. It doesn't match. It doesn't feel right. Uh, and once we realize that salvation is impossible from Mark 10, uh, when Jesus is teaching this to his disciples, that w- when they get to a place and they kind of just throw their hands up and say, well, who can be saved? If you're saying it's easier for, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for someone to be saved, well, who can be saved? Because you're basically telling us no one can be saved from their sins. So what do we do? And Jesus' response to that, you might remember, is, well, with man it's impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. And once we get to that place, once we have this kind of shock, once we're shocked that we're saved at all, once we realize that any conversion is the best of miracles, then we got something to hold on to, something worth holding on to, because We're not holding on to us. We're not holding on to something that we've done. We're not holding on just to something that we put into our our story, our our faith faith stories. Uh, We're holding on to God who miraculously saves us even while we were still sinning, even while we were hell-bent on doing evil, even while we were murdering Christians, even while we were rejecting him and spitting in his face. These are, this is the moment where God says, I can, I can work with that because it's me working entirely on, on my behalf, not responding to some moment of piousness in the mind and heart of another. Uh, he's not looking for that. He's creating something out of nothing. That's basically what the story is, is God creating prophecy out of nothing in Saul's heart. Uh, again, in the same way, this is, this is what he's like to you, and this is what he's like to me. Uh, it's, it's amazing that he's like this, incredibly humbling, but incredibly 
uh, invigorating spiritually as well. And um, something I think that even leads us to, this is, I think an example of how theology leads us to doxology, which is uh, the theology of of worship, a word that just means praise and worship. Uh, It leads us to actually worship and and thank God that we are here at all. Uh, We are in, in the church. What are we doing here? God must be at work deviating us um, from our, our race to hell. And that's exactly what he does through Jesus Christ. Okay, those are a couple of broad takes then to start with. I want to uh, pivot now to the, the specific angles on this passage that relate to what we just said, but look specifically at where is Jesus in this passage? Where is the descendant of David theologically and genealogically? And I think there are a few people and things in this passage that stand out as Christ-facing or foreshadowing of Jesus, especially his death and resurrection, which, again, is the ultimate reason these stories exist. So I have three big things. The, the, or, uh, yeah, people and, I guess, slash things. First is McCall. And this might be the easy choice here, as she's the most obvious protagonist and hero, hiding David from Saul's men, devising a plan to trick the pursuers into thinking he was lying sick in bed and then helping David to escape through a window. So McCall is a savior figure here, clearly, and in a way that points us ahead in the story to Jesus. But the manner in which she saves, I think, is even more important and underscores this idea even more. And I'll get to the other elements of her trick in a second, but you might be aware that this isn't the first or last time in the Bible that someone is let through a window. Uh, Rahab does this earlier in the story uh, for the Israelite spies in Joshua 2, and Paul's friends do this for him in Acts 9 uh, as well. Uh, And this story here in in 1 Samuel kind of falls in between uh, those two, so it's one of three. Uh, But in all these stories, or these two, I guess, these extra ones, um, those being lowered through a window uh, or through a wall are being chased in order to be killed, just like David is here. Um, and so there's an overlap in these stories. They overlap quite well. They're meant to. The question then becomes, why, why does the Bible make such a big deal of this theme? Why is this not just a one-off? Why is it repeated? The, the lowering of people through windows as they're being chased in order uh, to be killed. And the answer to that has to do, as we talked about before, um, with the nature of Christian salvation. Ephesians 2 says that the blood of Jesus brings down the dividing wall of hostility between us and God. It lets us approach God with freedom and confidence. And and better yet, God can approach us even through walls like Jesus did after his resurrection when he appeared to his, his friends, the disciples. That's the ultimate window or wall that Scripture cares about. Uh, when we're saved, we make a breach we, we pass from old to new, death to life, to be with God and God to be with us. Uh, and the way out isn't by the works of our own hands. That's a huge piece to see here, um, is that we are not saved by the works of our own hands, but by the nail-pierced hands of another. Like David is saved by McCall, so are we saved by the plotting and the scheming and the advocacy of Jesus. Uh, if this story or some version of this story was 
in another religious text, any other religious text besides the Bible, David would have let himself down out of the window. The spies in Joshua 2 would have let themselves down out of the window. Paul in Acts 9 would have let himself down out of the window. But none of them did in the Bible because the main message of the Bible is saved by grace, not by works. And so it would be inconsistent for that to be the case. All right, so the first piece we have is seeing McCall as this kind of call ahead, this hearkening of one who would come to help us pass through obstacles, the greatest of which is our sin, and, the, and even more than that, to not be in Eden anymore, to not be with God. Uh, but, but she helps David to pass through the window, this window of grace, uh, essentially, like Jesus would come in her, in her wake to do at a much higher level for all who believe. The second uh, is the idol with goat's hair, the statue um, with goat's hair. So is also a Christ figure. Uh, the reason this is important, though, um, is because it hits on the theme of substitution. So remember the story. The, the fake mannequin David takes the gaze of Saul's men so he can escape. And this is exactly what Jesus would come to do later in the story. He would be born into the world as a human being just like us. He would look like us. He would become like us. Uh, so that the gaze of death and sin and even the eyes of the devil himself would fall on him and not on us. Especially when he's dying on the cross so that we might escape. So excuse my um, obligatory semi-annual Lord of the Rings reference here. Um, but this is like um, that moment in Fellowship where Aragorn is setting up the fake mannequin hobbits in the beds in the Inn and Bree to trick the ringwraiths and to help the real hobbits escape from them, uh, if, if you know the story. But I digress. Uh, but it's exactly like that. It's, it's this moment of trickery. And the, the deeper theology here is to say that God is a trickster as well. Uh, in, in the purest and best way possible. He's a, he's a trickster in a way that benefits us. Psalm 59, actually, this is something actually I encourage you guys to read sometime. I'm not going to go through the whole thing for time's sake, but um, you may or may not know the Psalms, a lot of them were written in connection with the historical events of these historical narratives of the Old Testament. Psalm 59 was written in reference to this story. Uh, verse 0 in Psalm 59 uh, says, when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. And so David wrote a psalm about this actual event, uh, part, of, part of which was probably a prayer he prayed in the house, and a lot of this was born kind of there. Part of it might have been written after. We don't know exactly. But Psalm 59 was written in light of these very, very um, events. And it shed some interesting poetic light on this idea. So whenever we have this, reading the narrative and then reading the poetry or the song that complements the story, uh, sheds even more theological light sometimes on what it means. And um, for us, uh, ultimately for the whole story and how it points to Jesus, but also for us uh, as people who kind of partake uh, in this story in, a, in our own ways. Um, but in this psalm, like in a lot of David's psalms, he asks God for deliverance from those who are, quote, after my blood and those who are, quote, lying in wait for me. But then there's a surprising turn in verse 8 uh, where it says, but you laugh at them, Lord. You laugh at them. 
And I don't know if you guys have read this before in the Psalms. Uh, it's just not the only time this comes up. But this idea of how God laughs, uh, especially at those who are plotting against him or who are plotting against his anointed or his king, like in Psalm 2, for example, is another place this comes up. Um, but God can laugh, and, but he laughs in kind of a mocking way towards those who are seeking to thwart him uh, or his chosen king or his plan of salvation uh, in the world. And maybe you didn't know that about the Christian God, but we believe the same God who created the universe with a word can laugh at a good prank. And, and partly what he's laughing at here is McCall's prank, how these men fell for it. Uh, and more than that, what the trick pointed to. Uh, as I said before, was alluding to before, the ultimate trick of Scripture is at God's expense. But he laughs regardless. Because right when it seemed that sin and death would win and the devil would have the last laugh, Jesus comes into the world and becomes the sacrificial scapegoat. He lies in our sickbed. He takes all the fiery darts of the enemy and wears our shame, and we get let out the back window of salvation. And God gets the last laugh. And that's really, in a nutshell, you know, a way to kind of pull back the curtains of heaven and to see um, how much God is not just scheming, but how much he's scheming for our good against all evil, uh, and how even at times he laughs at the pathetic attempts of the devil and of sin and of man uh, to thwart God's purposes in the world, which is to save sinners, uh, to reunite with those who are exiled, who are lost. He wants to find. Think of Jesus, how much he rejoices, and he speaks in parables like this um, a lot in the Gospels, where he talks about rejoicing over the one lost sheep, like God is a seeker. He's a schemer. Um, and he's also one who plots against and uh, who thwarts the plots of those who are seeking uh, to detract and to deviate him and to throw a wrench in the gears of his saving purposes. But that can never be done. Uh, we're talking about God here, not man, right? Okay, so the third then uh, figure here is David himself, the ancestor of Jesus himself. This is the third and final Christ figure uh, in this, at least the third I'm going to talk about today, the third and final Christ figure in this passage. And you see it in the men who entered the room. Uh, so kind of picture the scene. It helps to just kind of smell the air a bit sometimes with these stories. Uh, the men enter the room, and they thought David was there. They had seen this statue or, with goat hair on it, and they realize, actually, he's not here uh, after all. Um, and, they're, and they're kind of thwarted, right? And Saul is thwarted and gets very angry um, um, about it. So, and that's what happens. And I think like with the men entering the room that moment, that's where you start to see the figure that David is kind of uh, taking on. Because um, when they come in and see that David's not there, it's, it's not unlike those who went to Jesus' tomb that first Easter morning and found sheets instead of a body. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa in the 4th century said this about this passage. Uh, he says, Jesus' image is seen on the bed. For the angel says to those seeking the Lord in the tomb, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Those seeking the Lord saw the tomb empty. Only the burial sheets were in it. We think, therefore, that the image of David on the bed signifies the resurrection of the Lord in the tomb, through which the true averting of our death through sacrifice occurs. 
So basically what he's saying here is um, one thing this passage means is the resurrection of Jesus. It exists for the resurrection. It points to the resurrection. It shows us that the resurrection of Jesus was always God's plan A. It was not an afterthought. Uh, and so symbolically ahead of time, we're seen into his brain, into the way he thinks, into what he wants, into what the ultimate end game of these kingly stories of the Old Testament would be. All right, but before we get there, though, uh, there's something else that stands out to me, and it has to do with McCall again. So kind of we're winding the tape a little bit, but looking at her in reference to David, her husband. And it has to do with McCall's lie to the men after Saul asks her what she's done. So if you caught this or not, but she says when she's pressed as to what happened, why'd you do this? Why'd you help him escape? Uh, When she's pressed, she says, David said to me he would kill me if I didn't let him get away, which obviously was not true. That's not how the story goes. Um, But what I like about this is it accentuates the substitutionary idea that we were talking about before. Uh, And so David's innocent here. He actually says in Psalm 59, going back to that psalm, he says, I have done no wrong. And yet, McCall blames him. And whether or not she actually means to do him harm or not is beside the point. The point is, she casts fault and blame onto him um, rather than taking it herself, which, when applied to Christ, is exactly how we come to understand the gospel. Jesus, though having done nothing wrong, not only is mistreated and falsely accused by the mob and the rulers of the day when he's being put on trial and crucified, but in a greater sense, He takes on all of our sin unjustly but willingly so that everything we've ever done wrong is cast onto him on the cross. And that's what's happening here in a small, whispery, typological way. Uh, There there is a king coming in the future in David's line who would be acted upon unjustly in this same way is the idea. So that when he comes, we won't be surprised or shouldn't be uh, that he's a blame taker. Uh, there's ultimate blame shifting of history. It's us putting blame or, or casting our sin or all of our wrongdoing onto Christ. And for those who crucified Jesus, all of us with them, they're not thinking that in the moment. They're actually sinning by crucifying him. But th- he's also bearing their sins, period, in general, all of our sins, by dying in our place on the cross. So being the innocent one who takes blame, the innocent one who takes our sin uh, is the M.O. of Christ. It's the M.O. of God. It, it, it is the, the, the central mission of God in the world is to come into it, to bear it, to wear it around his neck, uh, to not just judge it and comment on it from afar and just watch it, but to come into it, uh, to bear our shame as, as we, uh, in one of our songs, uh, sing here, uh, to, to, uh, to wear our sin and, and bear our shame is uh, precisely what David here is beginning to do and what Jesus would actually do uh, much later in in the story. And so when when you think about these things, uh, we've seen this a lot so far in the series. Uh, If you've been here for this, um, maybe you have especially seen it. But these stories exist that we might, again, know theology or know God and know his son. Uh, And when we understand him through these stories rather than just us, Uh, it becomes, I think, barely fathomable that God is actually like this. 
that he actually has restraint, that he actually is quick to love uh, and slow to get angry, that he is wrathful in all the right righteous ways, and yet it's not in a way that crushes us because of his son Jesus, who would come to bear his wrath in our place so that we might be shown mercy. Um, and also one who laughs and who tricks and who schemes and plots. And, but I, again, I think this is part of that, that this whole story is part of the trick of the ages. God is smarter than evil. He even uses evil to bring about the greatest of good, like Genesis 50:20 says. This is the type of king that Jesus would come to be. Though a giant slayer, one who would be gentle with us and blamed for our sin and willingly take it on himself in love for us as a substitute. Uh, that is the type of king he is and he would come to be. And he is for us even right now in this very room. He's gentle with us. He is showing us his scars on his hands, saying, this is how much I love you. Um, I'm the one who lowered you down through the window. You might not realize that, but it's been me all along, always there in your life, guiding you, protecting you, revealing myself to, revealing myself to you, ultimately saving you. But um, actually, I was thinking that when, I don't know if Leah's still in the room or not, Leah Miller, but um, when she prayed earlier about how Jesus didn't say, or didn't um, push us out of the way of the bullet, but jumped in front of the bullet. You know, th these stories exist for that reason. Uh, uh, what, what's more loving uh, when someone's drowning in a pool? To hold up a sign and say, this is how you get out? Or to jump in and pull someone out and then to die in the process? Which is more loving? This shouldn't be hard. It's clearly the latter. Because death and suffering and sacrifice and love are, are one and the same. They go together. Uh, Jesus even says this, the greatest form of love is to lay your life down for someone else. We don't have to guess about this if we're thinking biblically. And so Jesus is not one to just push us out of the way. He's one who gets in front. And so when you see images of sacrifice and substitution and taking the gaze of the enemy uh, and getting rope burns on your hands, letting someone else out down the window, who do you think this is about? Is it about you or is it about him? See, the God of the Bible says, I will suffer for you, not I need you to suffer for me. Uh, Christianity is, is unique in this regard uh, because Christianity is actually about love. We, we believe that God is love. The Christian God is love, as Scripture says. And so, so my final encouragement for you guys is uh, to remember in light of all of that, that God is always scheming and plotting for your salvation. Uh, way more than you ever do or would or are expected to. God is a schemer and a plotter for your salvation and advocates uh, seen in a, in a whispery, forward-looking sense uh, in, in the person of McCall in the story. Um, but always remember that. Uh, there's, I was talking to someone else this past week about this, how um, it's natural for Christians and non-Christians to think about God in the passive sense and us in the active sense, right? We, we think about God as seated up high in a throne and watching us, waiting for us to do something, uh, to do good or to abstain from evil, and we're the ones who are acting. Uh, but actually, it's completely the opposite. God is an actor, and we see him as the ultimate actor in stories like this, but much more than this. He's the one who's constantly coming towards us, saying, I want to be made into the image of my enemies so I can die for them. 
That's how he thinks. Isn't it incredible? We would never think that way. We never do. But God does because the Bible says he's not like us. And yet he becomes like us to die in our place so we can stop the mad charade of seeking to become perfect like him because he's always coming down. He's always descending and condescending to come to us so we can stop climbing and so we can rest. So we can, as the Bible says, believe in him and put faith in him and cast our cares upon him. The one who did no wrong, yet who was wronged, so that you and I might be let out of the window of his grace. Let's pray.